Well, cool. Welcome to Trinity Life. If this is your first time, I am uh, so glad that you guys are here. We are a church that's uh, newer. We started meeting about a year and a half ago. And uh, if this is a friend brought you or if you kind of heard about us through the grapevine, I'm really excited that you're here. We've also are really new to this space. Um, We've been here for, I think this is our fifth or sixth week in the auditorium here. I had Easter here last week. So uh, inside of your uh, program, there's a blue card. It's a connection card. Uh, And if you don't mind, if this is your first or second time here or... uh, uh, just kind of newer to Trinity Life. I'd love to, uh, for have you, to have you fill that out. And as the uh, basket goes around later for offering, that would be your gift for us today. But I also want to propose another usage for that card. Hey, if you have something that you need prayer for, uh, I'd love for you to write those things down on that card and also drop it in the offering basket as it goes around later. And uh, we want to make sure that we're praying for you. And so throughout the service, if you want to just pull that card out and fill it out, I'd love for you to do that. Uh, and then we'll do the offering towards the end. Um, one really kind of quick announcement, but a very important one, is in, uh, man, boy, in four, five weeks, uh, our Vietnam team uh, is going to be in Vietnam. Like, man, I am super stoked about that. Uh, and so uh, here is a picture of our team up here. There's eight of us, and I think most of us are in the room right now. If you're going to Vietnam, just raise your hand real quick. All right, okay, yeah. So... There's eight of us here, and uh, we're really excited about this trip. This is a chance for us as a church to learn how to work in another country um, and to serve in a country where typically it's harder for Christians to really do kind of like religious work. And so that's not our goal really so much as we want to be present. And so we're working with an organization called Global Ventures. They're going to teach us how to do that, how to work in hard-to-reach countries. And so we'll spend a week with them learning from uh, visiting their sites. Uh, It's really, really excited. Our team, you guys are a a 10-plus team. Uh, super excited about the team that's being put together. And so um, we're, we're going to be there from the, Mike and I will be there 16th through the 28th. The team will leave uh, the 18th and uh, come back the 28th and just be in prayer for us. And so one of the things that we want to do is we want to do like a kickoff, fun, informational fundraising night. Uh, you notice how I put fundraising towards the end of the uh, third adge- adjective there. Uh, but on uh, April 25th, Saturday at the K Club, we're going to do a night where our church and our friends, we're just going to have a bunch of fun. We're going to talk about the trip. We're going to share more. And then we're going to eat some, we're going to eat some of uh, Linda and, and Dorch's pho. So uh, it's going to be good. Dorch is like, what? I wasn't told about this. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, Dorch. I volunteered you and Linda. Uh, so we're going to just eat some pho and, uh, uh, and talk about why Vietnam and uh, learn some stories and then do some fun things. I think there's going to be an auction as well and other fun things. And so uh, this is a chance for you to uh, learn more about the trip, uh, prayer-wise, and then we really want uh, other people to hear about what we're doing as well. And so we'll have some information about that next week as well. Just keep your eyes out. So it's next Saturday the 25th that evening at the K-Club. All right, I am really excited about that trip. I haven't been back in two years, so. All right, as Mike was explaining uh, earlier, we're starting a new series uh, this week called Hope That Heals. And uh, in Canada, at least, um, I was shocked as I started doing some of the research at how affected Canadians are Uh, by mental uh, health issues. And so all these stats, 10.8% of Canadians struggle with severe depression. That's 3.6 million people in our country. 
Um, 12% struggle with anxiety disorders, diagnosed. These are not people that aren't diagnosed. These are people that are diagnosed. Um, and so the, sh the stat that shocked me the most was the stat, and we'll have it up here. But the age with the highest rate of depression symptoms are under 20 years. Teenagers. The age with the highest rate of anxiety, 20 to 29. We need to help the next generation. And what we're hoping and praying is that something about this series in our city, you, us, as we seek more healing from God, that that is going to have an effect. Like I look at my kids and I'm thinking, man, I don't want them to be stressed and depressed, right? But that's the trend all across our country. And I don't know what it is, but a part of our dealing with this issue is to begin to, to not just give like the, 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 the reductionistic uh, answers like, um, you know, uh, take your meds or get counseling or pray more or read your Bible more, all of those things in which we endorse. But there's so much more about the human soul that's more complicated than just meds and counseling and prayer and Bible, right? As a matter of fact, Psalms 42, the one we just read, it actually promotes and affirms the fact that we're psychosomatic spiritual beings. We think and we bleed, but we're also spiritual. So uh, Pete Scazzaro, he, he wrote a book called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And he says this, he says, it's an impossible, it's impossible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. Like, you can't walk around and say, I'm, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm mature in my spirituality, but you're anger, angry all the time. You're bitter. You're, you, you, people can set you off real easily. Uh, you're anxious all the time. You're always disappointed with people, with life. If that happens, that means you have a naive understanding of spirituality, or you're not really applying what you say you believe. In fact, our emotions... Our emotions are actually a gauge in which other people can actually see, is he applying, is she applying what she really believes? All right? So the guy who says, I love God, but he's always cussing at other people because he's always angry, there is a gap there. His anger is a gauge in which we understand how he applies what he believes. Um, almost all emotion is thinking and behavior driven. And so it's important for us to address what we believe is true and what isn't true. Truth drives our thinking. So in this series, we're going to be mining spiritual truths from the book of Psalms, truths that actually express themselves ultimately in the gospel of Jesus. And it's all found in songs. It's all found in these hymns that were written. Uh, these truths will actually redirect our thinking. And in redirecting our thinking, it recalibrates our heart, right? So when, when the truths begin to sink in and it changes the way that we think, eventually our bodies, our emotions will catch up to the truths that we say we believe. Um, here's one gospel truth. You ready? I'm just going to hit it hard from the beginning. Okay? And this is just the introduction. Uh, your identity is not found in what you feel about yourself. We are not what we feel. We're not what we think about our performance. We're not depression. We're not our anger. We're not our anxiety. We're not what people look at us and see from the outside. That that really is not your identity. These emotions are important because they help gauge 
your life. Like your emotions are helping you gauge what's actually going on outside of you. But don't confuse your emotions for who you are, really. Uh, some forms of depression can be thought about uh, how we're gauging how secure we are. And so sometimes when you're facing depression, it's actually a gauge on which you actually believe yourself to be secure. All right, I'll explain that. Um, Depression feels different to different people, all right? And if you're suffering from depression today, uh, if there's anything I say today that, like, sounds oppressive, it's not because I'm trying to be oppressive, all right? Um, And I'm not trying to be reductionistic or simplistic. But there are some things about depression that are very, very, like, it, 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 it spreads across the spectrum. Some people feel sad a lot when they're depressed, all right? Other people feel numb, anhedonia. That's a psychological term. Uh, for men, and I, uh, according to Archibald Hart, who wrote a book called Unmasking Male Depression, <clears throat> he says that men hide their emotional pain through workaholism, anger, aggression, irritability, substance abuse. So for many of us men, our depression comes out in unexplained anger, in rage, long hours at work, compulsive habits, addictions. We're undiagnosed because we don't feel sad. We just feel pissed off all the time. You know that guy. Maybe you are that guy. Uh, Whatever it feels like, uh, when depression hits, when the gauge goes off, it usually means this. There is a life circumstance triggering thoughts that question the security of who I am. There's something that's going on that's triggering a thought that's making you question the security of who you really are. All right. Um, a bit of history about myself. My mom uh, struggles with depression. Uh, a couple of my siblings and myself have, have had mild seasons of depression. And when I say mild, I just don't want to downplay the fact that a lot of people have very severe forms of depression. I would never think of my family as being cursed with depression. That's just not the... The, the understanding that I have of it. But it's a reality for us. It really is a reality for my, for my family. Uh, two years ago, uh, it really hit home. My mom, uh, her sister, uh, uh, had this argument with my uncle. And uh, so he uh, thought that she was cheating on him or something like that. He was suspicious of her. And so uh, he started spreading rumors. My wife, I think, is doing this and that. And so she was so upset and so weary by, by him that uh, one evening, and this is what I was told, um, one evening she went home, found a bottle of opioids, and swallowed them all and ended her life. And it really hit home for my siblings and I that there is something about this that we can't ignore. See, the problem of depression isn't low moods. That's, that's not the problem with depression. The problem with depression is the lies that we continue to believe about ourselves and then the actions that come out of those. That's the real problem. Uh, Believing the lies and acting wrongly not only robs you, us, but it robs God of worship and it robs God of relationship with us. Uh, we'll, We'll discover over the next couple of weeks that the gospel of Jesus actually redeems it redeems depression. It takes your depression and it turns it upside down. And he uses it. <clears throat> the thing that used to steal worship and used to steal relationship, he actually will use it in Jesus Christ to give him worship and to give you more relationship with God. 
Uh, I, I hope this morning that some of you guys will be set free. Not from low moods, but I hope that you will be set free from bad definitions of depression, of healing, of freedom. That God would give you a new definition for these things. All right, here's my tweetable. Uh, so if you get lost at any point in the sermon, come back to this. <clears throat> depression is not about low moods. In putting God first, depression becomes an occasion in which you can learn God's design for you to uniquely and genuinely express Christ in you in loving relationships. Christ. Depression is not about your moods. But if you put God first, it becomes the reason, the occasion in which you begin to learn, oh, this is how God's made me. I'm unique. You get a chance to express yourself, not in a room by yourself, but in a group of people that love you and that can affirm you. Right. Psalms 42 shows us how to get healing in depression in a way that God gets worship, and then we also learn more about who we are. All right. So three quick points this morning, and we're going to have a fun um, time uh, towards the end here in a testimony. Uh, but number one is express your soul. The psalm teaches us. Number two is it teaches us to investigate our soul. And then number three, it teaches us to water our soul. Express your soul, investigate it, but don't forget to water it, all right? Express your soul, or I, I, I put in, in quotes or, or in parentheses, sing. Sing your soul. Because that's what the psalmist does. He sings his soul. Uh, Christian counselor Bob Hamp, he says the synonym for depression is suppression. The antonym for depression is expression. All right. The psalmist gives us freedom for expression in the midst of depression. We might not be as eloquent as a psalmist, right? As a matter of fact, some of us, you know, who deal with this, you know, sometimes the only thing that you can express is, uh, it's true. We've had these conversations. And then after saying, uh, you close the curtains and go back to bed. Hey, that's a great start. Let me encourage you. That's a great start. Admit to yourself and to other people what's going on in your head. Write it down. Speak it out. You know, I feel dry. I feel nothing. I cry all the time. I don't know why. The psalmist says, look what the psalmist says, my soul pants. It thirsts. It's dry. He says, I cry. I feed on my tears, the psalmist says. Negative voices, condemnation, I feel unworthy, I don't measure up, I must work harder. This is the hardest thing about people who deal with depression is the need to work harder to make up for something. You don't know what it is, but you need to work harder. I doubt God. This is what the psalmist says. My enemies, the, the negative voices taunt me saying, where is your God now? Where, where is your God? And then what happens? I begin to believe in that God and then I ask and he says in I think verse 9, why have you forsaken me? Express those things. God is big enough to hear those things from you. Avoid the temptation for self-pity. But for the most part, some of you need to hear this, all right? So just because, like, I can say this and I have the mic, and this is authoritative because I'm standing at the mic, and you need to hear this. But you have permission to talk about your seasons of depression in this church. You have permission 
You have permission. Don't let the awkwardness of the first, like, well, this week I slept all week. Don't let that awkwardness stunt your growth and your health. Push through the awkwardness. You have permission to do this. Admit to yourself the source of your depression. All right? it's, not, it's not good enough to just be like content about like, yeah, I feel bad today. All right? Get to the source of it. The psalmist uses the Jewish term nefesh, which means soul, and it refers to both mind, body, and spirit. The Bible agrees that there are three different sources for things like depression. All right? So the body, you can get exhausted, burnt out, disease, hyperthyroids. Uh, there are different sources, medication, side effects. The body itself can cause depression. The mind, relationships, things people say to you, trauma in your life. These things mess with your mind. They can trigger depression. The spirit, sin, not living in obedience. Psalms 32 it, he says, it was like your hand was on me so heavy, and until I confessed it, then I found freedom. Not resting. Did you know that not resting is a sin, by the way? Okay. Those of you guys who work 80-hour weeks. <laughs> and yes, even demonic oppression is a source for depression. Uh, some commentators think that Psalms 42 is written about King David. Uh, his son Absalom was out to kill him. All right, that's not a fun thing as a father. Uh, he wanted to steal the kingdom away from David, and so David is freaking out. So a lot of people believe that this is written about that situation. And look at verses 9 and 10. This is David's response. Uh, maybe it was betrayal, maybe it was the failure in his fathering, but he says this in verse 9. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? You see, failure and, and betrayal triggered this defeated thinking in David's mind, all right? But, but, in pinpointing the source of his depression, do you think he was actually further from healing or closer to healing? closer Neil Burton is a psychiatrist he wrote a book called um, uh, I forget the name of the book Mad ask me later I'll find it for you <clears throat> uh, in reading it uh, he says uh, in such cases depression may simply be a normal reaction to a life event or a situation or to a fresh insight for instance, you're coming into terms with the loss of a loved one or coming to the realization that you can no longer continue along your chosen career path. This is a very important possibility to bear in mind because in such cases, popping, sorry, in such cases, popping an antidepressant pill is likely to do more harm than good. An antidepressant pill might give you unpleasant side effects, of course, but more importantly, it might lead you to think of your feelings in terms of medical illness rather than in terms of your relationship to the world, which is probably the most important thing about you. Is he saying don't take medicine? No. Is he saying deal with your life? Yeah. 
You can medicate feelings. You can't medicate life. The quicker we can say, that, that's what did it to me, the faster we'll, we'll get to healing. Healing doesn't mean the low moods go away. Healing means this. You're discovering God's design for you. How resilient you are. Is this hard? This is so stinking hard. This is, this is a, in some days, it will feel like an insurmountable mountain to say that I'm going to embrace life. I'm going to embrace this hill. And I'm going to walk up this hill. <laughs> I'm going to walk up this hill, and I may fall backwards, but I'm going to walk up this hill. It is hard. But don't pop pills because you're avoiding the hill. It's the reason why you need community. Community needs you. There's enough grace. There's in, look, turn around real quick. Not everybody knows each other, but in this room, there's enough grace. It's not a big group, but there's enough grace and encouragement around you to begin processing the life situation around you. There's enough people. There's enough people for you to begin to process your life situation. There is enough people. Are we experts? No. But there are enough people around you. You need fresh eyes on your experience. You need people to speak truth into your situation. If you're regularly talking to other people already, you're one of my heroes. Especially the days and the weeks when you don't want to talk about it. You're a hero. If you're in a dry season, don't pull away from the body. Do the opposite of what you feel. Do the opposite of what you don't feel. Uh, a Trinity lifer uh, who's healing in depression uh, shares this with, with our church. So listen to it. Try to encourage them with truth, but do it with gentleness. They may not respond to the truth immediately because they are distorted. They are in a distorted world. But have patience and persevere. Don't force feed truth to them. You just need to point out where there is a glimpse of light in the darkness, and God will work on helping them finding and keeping that light. And then there are four things. Encourage with openness. Listen with empathy. Speak truth with love. Don't just say truth and then walk away. Do it with love. And then when they tell you get away or don't give me a meal or don't show up my doorstep, persevere with patience. Do it for six months. Do it for six years. That's what they need from you. That's what you need from other people. But don't stop at just diagnosing, all right? Uh, dig the well deeper. Imagine we're digging a well. Don't stop at six feet. Go deeper which is our second point. The, Psalms, the psalmist says, investigate your soul. Get to know what's going on. Ask the hard questions. The psalmist did. He says, why? Why are you downcast, oh my soul? How did I get here? Why are you in so much turmoil? God, why have you forsaken me? Why am I so discouraged? 
ask these questions. The Bible is encouraging us to ask the hard questions, not because we'll get easy answers or we'll understand the answers, but because in asking the hard questions, it actually leads to more interesting conversations with God. Some of us are just having boring conversations with God. All right. And I don't, I don't want to you know, uh, downplay the, the, the journey in this. But our conversations have been, oh, take this away. Ask the harder questions. Why is this here? And when you don't get an answer, keep asking. It facilitates a journey with him. In the end, you know yourself better. I remember a couple years ago, I was going through a season. Uh, I say a season, you know, winter here is a season, <laughs> a long season. This is probably a year and a half, two years, seasons of dryness. And a friend of, uh, was helping me process the season with me. And I thought I knew my personality type. Um, but at the end of that season, this is what I found out, that my depression, I hated it. I hated it. But it was like, it was like you know, a, a, a vacuum cleaner at a birthday party, you know, vac as, a, as, a, as a birthday gift. Like, I hate this. Like, why would you give this to me? But it's very useful. <laughs> and at the end of my journey of that season, and if you want to know more, I'd love to sit down. I've, there's been three distinct seasons in my life where I felt like I walked through some very, very lows in my life. Uh, you know, what psychologists would say, episodes. This is, I discovered a lot about myself, five things, um, and I'm going to run through them quickly. And I think that if you ask the hard questions when you're in these seasons, that you hear similar responses. Number one is this, you have limitations by design. <laughs> your energy, your personality, your family background, by design, boom, limitations for you. Embrace it. You're not him, her. You are you. Love it. You know, you hear Dr. Phil and all these other guys say, you, you need to learn to love yourself more. <laughs> and, I'm, uh, and that's true. But the best way to do that is to embrace your design. You have limitations. I no longer can work 70-hour weeks. At one point, I could. I can't do that anymore. I'm freaking out if I'm doing 55 weeks. I learned my limitations. Number two, you have gifts by design. Me, I found out that I'm very driven. I'm very ambitious. I'm visionary. I'm hopeful. I'm strategic. At once, I couldn't embrace these things. I thought it was better for me to just be humble and a background type person. And I realized that, nope, nope, these are your gifts. It's okay. It's okay to walk them out. Number three is this, uh, I learned that life is hard by design. Are you picking up on my prepositional phrase right now? Okay. I was fooled because a lot of things came easy for me at first. There's a lot about life, like I got married pretty early, like guys struggled with getting married. I was like, oh, hey, you want to marry me? Great. 19, boom, put a ring on it, sealed, done deal, right? It was never a struggle for me, right? So I was thinking, yeah, all of life must be like that. <laughs> By design, life is hard. But you learn to appreciate it. Life is beautiful 
life is beautiful by design. I remember in that season, and all I could do, literally, like you could talk to Linda, literally all I could do is like stare out the window. And there, there's one that I was staring out the window. And I saw these butterflies just go, coming out of the bushes. I mean, I, God, I feel like God did that just for me. Like the butterflies just went, I, it must have been three, four hundred butterflies. Uh, they could have been moths, cause, but, but they were colorful. And I remember in that moment, God speaking to me, saying, hey, you like that? You're like a butterfly. You'll fly one day. But rest right now. Life is beautiful. People around you. Like, don't for a second turn around and see the people in training life and say, oh, I wish that guy was more business or that guy was more hipster or that, <laughs> whatever criteria that people put on to other people not for a second should you look around and not appreciate the people that God's put around your life it's beautiful this is a beautiful church the happenstance the humor it's all beautiful fifth thing and this is me maybe it's Asian me uh, but this was the hardest for me, was to trust others with my heart. I would trust others with my responsibilities, with my work. I couldn't trust other people with my heart. I was never taught that. Half of you guys are Asians. I don't, I don't know if you learned that in your home. I didn't. And I realized in this process that, oh, it's okay if I trust him with my heart. I'm not going to trust everybody with my heart, but I can trust some people. There's, there's pain in the investigation. <clears throat> sometimes, you find, sometimes you find out that you're not as good as you thought you were. Are you okay with that? I wasn't. <laughs> I was a straight-A student, so that's perfectionist me. Like, ah, ah, I'm not the best. I hated that. Um, but if you keep asking why after why after why, you'll, you'll eventually discover that at the end of the trail of whys is something, and that something is actually your hope for life. That something is actually the anchor in your life. And the most depressing moment in your life is when you ask why after why after why, and you see that thing that's your hope, and you realize that that hope can't save you. That's the most depressing moment. My reputation, my performance, my luck, my uh, chance. I'm just hoping things will come together. That's my hope. And it'll fail you. So what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? Um, first of all, uh, before we get to the part where it says hope in God, I want to take a step back and I say, I think you need to mourn. I think we need to mourn. Unless you mourn your brokenness, you will eventually insist that you're okay. You get that? Okay. Unless you're mourning that you're broken, eventually your mind is going to say, oh, I'm okay. You have to mourn. You have to mourn the pain, the loss, the hurt, the sin, the disappointment. You have to mourn all of that. You can't hydrate a thirsty soul 
if the soul is filled with all these other things. Mourning is the act of letting these things go so you can hydrate with God. Mourn first, sorrow first, empty first, then drink. That is the essence of Christian repentance. That's how repentance happens. After properly mourning, do what the psalmist does and preach the gospel to yourself. Preach your best sermon. You're saying, oh, I'm not a preacher. Yes, you are. You might not preach in front of people. You can preach to yourself. This is how the psalmist does it. He says, put your hope in God. And when he didn't believe it again, he felt like he had to put it at the end of the song in verse 11. Put your hope in God, my soul. Why are you so downcast? Hope in God. One day I will praise and I will sing to him again. He's preaching to himself. You guys can do this. It's fun, actually. I've done it several times. <laughs> well, you know, how do, you, how do I do this? Uh, as someone seeking after God, uh, how do I find hope? Funnily enough, the way that I find hope is looking at somebody who is worse off than me. I look at the fellow who's worse off, right? It's funny how looking at people who are worse off than you actually kind of make you feel better. and Like, it's kind of twisted. But it's true. I look at the most sorry-filled person I know. Jesus. The message of the gospel is this. That joy was purchased in Jesus' sorrow on the cross. Not to make us feel better, but to give us a new spirit, a new identity. The gospel says, my guilt is gone, so I tell that to my soul. The gospel says, my shame is gone, so I tell that to my soul. The gospel says, shut up, negative self-talk. I win. I win. Yo, I win. Jesus is not trying to make you feel better. He's trying to give you a new spirit. Depression oftentimes is a vehicle for you to be disappointed in everything else and to cling to him. Um, one of the phrases that I love hearing so much is this phrase, whistling in the dark. Uh, it was a part of this country song called You Move Me. I don't listen to country music, but I wept and wept and wept listening to this song on a repeat for uh, about three months. And um, uh, I read uh, a book from Charles Spurgeon about four years ago, and he talks about the different kind of reasons for depression. And Charles Spurgeon is somebody who has whistled in the dark. He's called the Prince of Preachers. He's preached to millions of people, and yet he's most famous in some ways for his chronic struggle with depression. And this is what he writes in his book. He says, before any great achievement, some measure of the same depression is very usual. Immersion and suffering has preceded the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Fasting gives an appetite for the banquet. The Lord is revealed in the backside of the desert 
while his servant keeps the sheep and waits in solitary awe. The wilderness is the way to Canaan. The low valley leads to the towering mountain. Defeat prepares for victory. The raven is sent forth before the dove. The darkest hour of the night precedes the day dawn. Spurgeon whistled in the dark. When things were darkest, he would go, And it moved him to where God needed him to be. In groping in the dark seasons, you find reason for living that only the Holy Spirit can show you. Your therapist can't show you these things. Only God can tell you what your past is about. Only God can tell you what your fears really mean. Only by knowing God more. Will you know your own soul? It's pointless to take this plunge into this deep introversion when you should be looking up and God would tell you more about yourself. I want to invite Wendy to come up here and share a bit of her story with us as we wrap up. We asked Wendy to just kind of share a season in her life, and I think she's got some things that she'll encourage us with. The psalm said, my tears have been my food day and night. In September of 2012, as a result of a broken relationship, my world fell apart. In reality, though, it was simply a trigger. It was a, a trigger for a flood of unhealed hurts that had been swept under the rug for decades. All the while asking, why, God, why? What ensued was to be the darkest period of time I could ever have imagined. Depression like I had never known before. I wrote this on August 17th, 2013, a year, almost a year after it started. I entitled it Agony. Vomit your tears, retching each sob until there's nothing left. Lying, spent, curled in a ball, as if to shelter your core from any more hurtful blows to the gut, putting a protective shield around you, hugging yourself as tight as if holding all yourself together, silent hands over your face to give support to the anguish leaking out, drained, emotionless, empty, aching, pain so deep and hollow that it's like a bottomless well, Desperately flailing, not knowing where to put the pain or what to do to make it stop. Days consisted of crying for no apparent reason or staring blankly into space. OCD, anxiety, addiction overtook me, relentlessly hurting myself and not knowing why. But all through this, God was moving. I was codependent with low self-esteem to be loved by someone depended only on how I looked, how skinny I was, 
My value is only derived from what other people think of me. I lost myself altogether. I didn't eat. I didn't sleep or, 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 I, or I slept nonstop. I felt no more emotion. I had no more tears to cry. I became flat, uninterested in life, no joy in anything at all. Everything became too much of an effort. Eating, TV, cleaning, working, talking, showering. I wanted to see no one, not even my dearest friend, my daughter. I just wanted to be by myself with my never-ending, maddening thoughts. The thoughts that kept reminding me and reinforcing how hopeless things were and how inadequate I was. But in spite of this, I came to realize that in his gentle way, God was right there with me, hurting with me as I cried, speaking to me. Refiner's fire, maybe, I guess. God was moving. He provided me with people who cared about me. And the wisdom and patience that they offered me was unreal. Even a non-believing friend encouraged me to go back to church as I had stopped going and had drifted away from God. God led me gently by the hand through a number of pretty miraculous stepping stones and gradually taught me to surrender everything to him. I began to read books, the Psalms, spend time with God, listen to worship music. And then on October 14th, 2013, just over a year later, God led me to Trinity Life, a place where I felt safe and I didn't feel judged in any way to dress or to look a certain way. Complete acceptance and love, no matter what I looked like. Messages from Jeremiah 1.5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And Ephesians 1.5. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. These were taught about finding your identity in Christ. That was the message series. I went back and reread my notes last night. He set me apart. God knows me. He chose me. And he's called me for a specific purpose. Who and what you worship shapes your identity. When other things become the ultimate in your life, then you will lose yourself. If you make Jesus your ultimate, then you'll be set free. I needed to repent of those thoughts and situations that had happened to me in the past. Hear, trust, obey, up, in, and out, living in community. That was the turning point where God showed me that what I had been searching for in all the wrong places, he showed me that who I am is based in whose I am. His child, made in his image, called to his purpose, and that by trying to find acceptance from others, I had made other things my idol instead of Jesus. Jesus and I are intrinsically intertwined, and he's called me to live out my destiny. 
not to please others, but to be who he created me to be. I no longer have to pretend or worry about what others think. I can be free just to be exactly who I am, my quirks, my physical appearance and all. I don't have to do any work because it's already been done for me. Preparing this was hard because I knew it would open up a lot of unpleasant memories, but when I realized how Christ brought me through that black hole of my life, that pain is somehow diluted. I remember that there was pain, but I don't feel the pain anymore. Looking back now, I know that Jesus was in the midst of my situation all along. I used to think there would never be a light at the end of the tunnel or a way out of the bottomless pit. But slowly, painfully, and gently, Jesus restored in me the exact opposite of every one of those things that had me in captivity. Acceptance instead of rejection. Hope instead of hopelessness. Joy instead of despair. And life instead of death. third point was water your soul and even now as Wendy was sharing that I just feel uh, just overwhelmed by uh, God's word and uh, the point of the third bullet was that uh, you have to allow worship to wash over your soul that's the point of the whole psalm um, and I keep asking God why, why when the well is so deep already God you Take it even deeper. Because you, you get to this point when you feel like things can't get worse and then it gets worse. God, why does the well get deeper? Why? In verse 7 and 8, he, the psalmist talks about waterfalls and breakers and waves that are just crashing over us. And, uh, you know, I just I feel like there are seasons where I ask those questions. Why can't it just stop? Why does the well go deeper? And oftentimes it's in the depth of the well that God says, because my joy is that deep. And I want to fill you to the depths. We had a great activity planned uh, for our, to end our service this week. But I want you to put this stuff in practice in being community to me and my family this week. And I wasn't going to do this, but I just feel like I need to do this for my wife. Can you grab Linda? I think she's in the nursery or something like that. Uh, I'm going to go off script, Mike. So you end it the way that we need to end it. But uh, I need prayer for these uh, days. Uh, nothing crazy. Like, uh, nothing crazy. Uh, but I've been, the whole time I was sharing this, I felt like there's a monkey in my back. Like, if I can't do this, then you won't do it. <laughs> and so uh, I'm going to do it. You guys get to practice on me this week in Body Life Group. Practice on one another, okay? Um, practice every day. Uh, but um, I'm waiting for Lennon to come just because I don't want her to be caught off guard as to what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, but the, the community aspect that Wendy had talked about, that we first talked about, is so key. 
For those of you guys who walk through this seasons, dark seasons, you know that it's not about just having friends with you for six months. You know that. Six months isn't long enough. And so there's something about deep community that needs to happen. When I need to be, con <clears throat> I need to be convinced that you love me. The depressed person or in your seasons of low, even if you're not dealing with, uh, with uh, the difficult, uh, you know, long seasons of life, but even in those three weeks or four weeks that you feel low, the number one thing that you need to know is that there are people around you that care for you, that if they needed to leave work early, they would do it. If they needed to make meals for you for a week, they would do it. If they needed to give you a break in some kind of activity, they would do it. And this is the community, Trinity Life, that we've been called to. This is the body. This is the body that will not, at the end of the day, that will not miscarry. This is the kind of body, at the end of the day, that will carry disciples to the next generation. To the next generation. Come over here, girl. Uh, and uh, uh, come stand. We're about to get some prayer. We're about to get healed. God's going to heal us. And in healing us, he'll a thousand more people. So uh, this this Sunday, I was super excited to make an announcement that after four children, we went for five. And, and uh, Lord willing, that's the case. Uh, I am so excited about the possibility of having another, you know, a small one. <laughs> pulling on us and keeping us up at night and um, probably more excited than Linda was. Uh, and yesterday we went to the doctor and um, short story, uh, long story made short. Uh, all signs seem to point at uh, a miscarry. And, uh, you know, you tell yourself that this happens all the time and I know people who've miscarried six, seven times, and now I know why they're so bitter. <laughs> and uh, I've just been looking at Linda these past two days and getting blank stares, and that has worried me quite a bit. Because you know Linda, she doesn't give blank stares. And when she looks at you, she sees your soul. And uh, so I'm going to ask for prayer this week. I felt like it would have been dishonest to preach next week and then next week when we're carrying this with us. And so, um, Adam, lead us in worship. And we're going to stand right here. And if you don't have faith, don't pray. I want you to ask the best prayers that you know how to pray for us. I want you to pray for Linda. And ask God to use this so that the enemy won't rob us of joy in this season.